guys welcome back to the blood black room podcast i'm ryan from the moon is dead world.net and i'm joining my co-host martin how's it going and uh today we are back for an extra special um episode of the show where we talk again about another action movie <laughs> it's kind of becoming the uh the norm for us right now covered quite a few in the last few weeks so hopefully you're into that or oh, else i think the difference is Dread's the action movie. <laughs> Dread is the action movie, and the the rest of them that we talk about are just it has some action in it. Unless it's mad, you know, a Mad Mad Max, Max film. Well, we have a veteran of a Mad Max film in this one. John Goodman. <laughs> yes, yes, that's what I. That's exactly who I met. Um, no, today we're talking about Atomic Blonde, which is in theaters now. Uh, came out this uh, previous Friday. And uh, the theater that we went to had uh, just us in it. So, it's doing pretty well at the box office, according to our <laughs> local theater. <laughs> um, and to be, fair, I, to be fair, though, I like my movies with nobody fucking in it. No, I totally agree. I'm, I'm glad that there was no one there. Like, when we went to see Spider-Man, it was full. Like, not full. Yeah, I've I mean, never yeah. been. I've never been to a show that was actually full there. No matter I've never been what, to one. The, what, it, what the movie is, I've you know, seen, like... Pretty, you know, like I think seventy five percent, I'd say, is like the highest. Yeah, off the top of my head, that I can and, and Spider Man wasn't even that close. No, Spider Man was more like fifty percent. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, even that, just having that many people there, it's like, why you all got to come out when we're coming out? And maybe it's because we, I've moved, you know, moved to becoming sort of a critic now mm-hmm. because of the this foray into podcasting. I used to be someone who never spoke during a film. Even like going like with friends, I wouldn't talk or anything. I hate when like it's like, hey, what's going on? I was like, shut up and just watch the fucking movie. Now, it's like I just want to sit there and kind of like audibly be like, well, that's fucking stupid, or like, oh, that's you know pretty cool. You point like, things out, yeah. And you were doing that quite loudly in this show, where to the point where I was wondering, like, because we we were sitting in the middle of the theater, and so I couldn't really see in the back part of the theater. So I'm hoping like. I hope no one snuck in here, like, while we were sitting here, and now we're, like, commenting on this very loudly, and they're sitting in the back, like, those fucking assholes up there thinking they're the only ones in the theater. I, I really- No, I'm sure somebody, if somebody did, they would have said something. 
Yeah, I mean, because it would have then only been us and them. (laughs) So it wasn't, it wouldn't even be like there's like quite a few people in there where there would be like that bystander effect where someone would be like, well, maybe someone else will say something. No, they probably would have said something. So, but I was worried for legitimately at the beginning of the film. Plus, we're funny. Look, if I was in that same situation, like I went to see like a movie with somebody and we're just sitting there watching and someone's commenting on it, but they're actually making funny comments, it wouldn't bother me. I think that would probably have like a good laugh at that. Like, yeah, but so your some people's funny is different. So like maybe they wouldn't be thinking like everything that we're saying is funny, and then they wouldn't be listening to the Blood and Black Rum podcast. Oh, shame on that. So fuck off to those people. <laughs> um, but anyway, I was excited to see Atomic Bond. It kind of fits within our wheelhouse. Um, we try to do quite a few of the. You know, action superhero films that are coming out in theaters right now, and and it's a perfect perfect blend. Um, and you also get a, a little bit of uh, Soviet uh, a Soviet uh, action there too. Oh. So it's something that we've never really covered on the show before. Well, you can just call it what it is. It's a summer blockbuster. That is true. That Made is- on a small budget. Is it really though a small budget? Thirty million. Nah, so yeah, I guess so. For a, for a summer for a summer blockbuster type film. Considering Ac- action small action film, yeah, no, it's that's it's paltry. Well, but I mean, it's stylish yeah. for that uh, small amount of money that they invested in it. Um, well, that sh- that sh- at this point, should it really cost you a lot of money to do like fancy overlays and? No, they probably got the same guy from Suicide Squad. Yeah, like the same guy that's been doing all of them yeah, recently. Probably. And they're like, what you did for that movie? Can you do for us too? Sure. Let me just tack it on to the production costs of that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just charge them. I don't. I don't see it being like expensive. It's not like they're building like painstaking like miniatures. Like they're, it's like Empire Strikes Back. Like, hey, we gotta have this elaborate, you know, miniature set no, to show. Yeah, they're just photoshopping graffiti over a yeah. over a video image. So it's probably probably not super difficult. Probably out of the thirty million dollars for this uh, film's budget, out of the thirty million dollars, twenty five million of it went to song copyrights. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> There's quite a few song copyrights in it becomes like a huge part of the film. So I'm imagining that there was a vision for those types of films. And they're like, I don't care what you have to spend on this. Get the film right or get the song rights for this film. And that became like the momentum behind the film. It's not, not really like, let's make a great plot. Let's make a really, you know, dynamic spy thriller. It was more, Let's make sure that we've got all of the '80s hits that we want for this for this film, and and also make it look pretty neon too. Yeah, well, it's like, what would Ghost in the Shell have? Depeche Mode. We need Depeche Mode too. No Duran Duran, as we mentioned in the while we were in the theater. That that's a crime. It's a travesty. It is. I love Duran Duran. I'm no, not ashamed to say that. No flock of seagulls. No, oh, Flock of Seals was in there. Wait, were they? Yes, they had Iran playing when the, the car chase scene was going on. Hmm, must have slipped my mind because the rest of the car chase wasn't that great. <laughs> no, we're uh, we're getting a little too far in because I don't want to talk about that stuff yet, and I don't want to demean the film just just yet in the beginning of the podcast for for sure. Um, really, we haven't done that before. <laughs> yeah, we probably have, but I don't want to. Uh, like, now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's for things that we just really can't hold off on. But um, so. I guess the thing that really drew us into Atomic Blonde trailer. right off the bat was the trailer. Yeah, that we saw. And we saw that when? When we saw Wonder Woman, maybe? 
Was that the first yeah. time that we saw it? I feel like it was because yeah, we were watching Wonder Woman. You know, I already geared up for doing a, a podcast about a new DC film and really unsure about what we were going to get at that time. And uh, we saw the trailer for Atomic Blonde and we're like, hmm. Which I knew nothing about. I didn't either. I didn't even know it was like, well, you know. No. I had no idea. And I it I was like, color me intrigued. Color me, color me neon blue intrigued. Because that looks kind of cool. And Charlie Theron as a lesbian? I'm down. Because that was a big focal point of the trailer itself. Um, I know that w- the one that we saw was not was like you know a general audiences trailer, but I do know that they released a restricted trailer as well, which I'm assuming capitalized on the amount of boobage and buttage that was in the film related to Charlize Theron and uh, Sophia Butella. So I think that was even though. As you said before we started the podcast, that the idea for the lesbianism in the film was not so much to titillate. I think that's bullshit. No, I think so, too. I think that there was never... I mean, I for for one thing, even though Charlize Theron is listed as a, a producer on this film, I don't really think there was a consultation with a woman that was like, what do you think about a tasteful lesbian scene in Atomic Blonde? I think it was more so a bunch of a panel of guys being like, that would be great. That'd be great. We'd sell. We'd sell. And uh, so I think that the idea that it was in there to sell like a spy thriller type thing or, or like characterize Especially a spy. Especially because it's an action film. Like I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, women can't like action films because they can. But like, have you ever seen like, like it's not like these, I can't like recall like even like ones that like star like like this one, a female lead or Ghost in the Shell starring a female lead that like seem directed towards a female like a more of a female audience. Even Mad Max it's Fury either, Road, not not so much of a female audience. I would say, see, like with like Ghost in the Shell and Fury Road, like see, it's either I think like for an action film, the marketing is like either male or both unisex. It's not like they're like focusing towards like. They're never going to focus towards females because it's like, it's just not where the demographic lies. Right. It's kind of like how, um, people might get a little bitchy about and angry about this, but it's like, it's like with like some video games and like people are like, like, oh, Grand Theft Auto, you know, they got strippers and hookers and you get to beat them up. It's like a male power driven fantasy and like, you know, takes away from females. It's like, the demographic's not, that's not what they're going for. You know, like, certain things. It's, like, it's not what they're going for. It's up to you to decide if you want to consume, you right. know, the media. If, if it's not to your liking, then not, it wasn't targeted towards you. True. I, I don't think a lot of, especially a lot of media these days, is really interested in trying to persuade people who might be, like, iffy on it. It's about, we. alright, this is what we know. Again, a lot. it's why they have, you know, pre-screenings and all that, you know target demoing and all that stuff because it's like all right this is what we, are, we think our audience is going to be so and i think that like you know applies to the action film it's not like when you see like the notebook they're like you know men are really gonna want to see this too you yeah. know your average male is from alabama yeah it's gonna be like wow i mean clearly that those types of films too rom-coms are really not targeted towards men and, no that's and, what i'm uh, saying it's either like you can like make it uni like, yeah it's fun for both you know right. like you know There'll be something in there, like, for both, like, you know, sensibilities, or it's leaning towards another. There's, you know... Yeah, and I think that's pretty much how Atomic Blonde went, was that it was heavily leaning towards a male dynamic, a male audience that 
would be very interested in seeing, uh, first of all, a bunch of like 80s pop songs fit to action sequences. Which again, I think that, again, that's like target demo. That's our demographic. True. We're, I that's... mean, and also we're, we're making a swing back towards 80s uh, culture. culture and, pop, um, you know, pop songs are kind of mimicking the, the 80s style. So it's well, like it's, I said, I've said before on the podcast, like the stuff cyclical, like you know how like in the '90s you had almost like for like a year and a half a like '60s revolution, you know, coming back like the Austin Powers and you know Oasis and like the style of clothing and stuff, and then like a little bit of the '70s and the 2000s, and you know earlier in the decade a little bit of the '90s too. It's all cyclical, like it all eventually like they like take like old things and kind of like you know yeah. And I mean that's exactly what Atomic Blonde does. It kind of like hell. And I was thinking too, in the nineties too, you had like fucking mini fifties Renaissance with like you know the, like zoot suits and swing music. You had like it wasn't just Lou Bega. There's like <laughs> like three or four different swing songs that you know. Oh yeah, like the was, the uh, zoot was suit riot being another one. Yeah, or, yeah, like, the Stray Cats and things like that. Really well, they're more eighties, but yeah. Yeah, I can. I mean, definitely. This is this is again really hearkening to that, and it's it's it fits really well within the whole dynamic that stuff like Suicide Squad set up earlier um, with that sort of neon esque Borderlands overlay of text and kind of a stylistic um, decision to make it. Graphic novel. Yeah, yeah. Well, basically, and and it, I mean, which it makes the, sense. Which the again, film is based the, off of. The film is based off of it, but um, there's definitely that inspiration, or I, I, maybe not even inspiration, but just you know, decision to to help sell the the film and fit it within the context of what we've already seen previously from films of this nature. Um, so there's all that, but but with that said, it did rope us in. <laughs> Uh, both of us were intrigued by it, and so we thought that would be a perfect episode for the podcast. And so here we are talking about Atomic Bond. I actually thought it for once, like usually when I see like trailers for action films, like you get really like, Ugh. I actually thought the trailer for not just because like ooh lesbians, ooh you know, um, I th- like I thought like overall like the action and all of it. I thought it actually like this actually looks like it might be like, a, actually a fun film, like a good yeah, like a good mix of not action. not saying it's gonna be the smartest film out there. It actually looked like hey, this is actually gonna be. A fun film, not like you're seeing Transformer Seven with Mark Wahlberg. Like, what's going on again? How you doing, dog? Right. I like to call that a good mix of plot and action. Not so much Transformers films that shit blows up. Not and even plot. I'd say just more, just atmosphere. Yeah, that too. Because it's got, I mean, it's got the '89 atmosphere of being in Berlin, and it's pretty kind of cool. Which it looked interesting from your historic history standpoint of uh, being uh, well versed in history and and um, potential history teacher material over there. Um, Show this in the classroom. That's yeah, that's right. Which well, well, I guess we'll talk about if you recommend it as a historical uh, piece of education. Um, all right, so let's take a break. We'll come back. We're going to talk about some of the beer that we've had. Over the past few days because we have a new one on the show and I did have a few while I was on my mini vacation in Maryland. This fifth of the year. (laughs) So stay tuned for that. Hi, this is Derek from The Wild Pitch. 
and I'd like to talk to you about something that's very important to me. My podcast, The Wild Pitch. Now, since you clearly don't have access to a skip button, listen to this. Eat as many brats as possible. And this. An in-home cat communication system that allows your feline friends to talk to you through a series <laughs> of intricate bell rings and button presses. <laughs> and how about that? I imagine it would be about as satisfying as drinking orange juice after having a burrito. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, uh, I don't know, stare into the sun and you might hear it. It'll buzz in your ears. All right, so uh, the beer that we've got on tonight is actually from Maryland because I brought it back with me because I went to a gigantic beer, liquor, and wine store in Maryland, and it pretty much had everything that you could possibly be looking for in terms of any type of liquor, wine, whiskey, whole aisles worth of that shit. Any type of wine that you're looking for, they've got an entire section full of it. It's amazing. We don't have that around You can here. tell we're, I'm a country bumpkin because I went down there and I saw a fucking Wegmans with two floors and I just went about, pretty much went ape shit, my mouth hanging on the ground. See, and I told you, you didn't believe, because there is Wegmans in central and western New York. And I've been to like a couple and I told you it's like, I was skeptical too. I had, And we brought it up on the podcast before. Like people have said like, uh, you don't know what Wegmans is? I'm like, no, what the fuck's Wegmans? It's like, what kind of butt fuck town are you from? And I'm like, well, we have Price Chopper in Hanford. Mm-hmm. And then I actually went to one. It's like, God, my God, like, Jesus Christ, it is Disneyland. It's amazing. They it's have huge food core. They've got du- double aisles because they have, like, an aisle. And then there's another, like, v- horizontal aisle. And then there's another set of vertical aisles. And it's like, you have double aisles here. It's amazing. It's like a warehouse full of food. If you ever if you ever needed like a place to stay out in during the apocalypse, you go to a Wegmans. I would almost say not because I'm sure probably most people would say that it'd probably be a, fr- a total yeah. fucking free for all. Okay, then you just go to the our price chopper and you got it all to yourself. Or Grand Union. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but so the uh, Wegmans was crazy. This liquor store was crazy. Which um, we should preface too. Up here in New York, we don't have liquor stores that sell liquor and beer. Not not generally. I mean, they may cross over, but not real. I mean, there's not really a big push to have both liquor and beer in the same store. I've never seen it. I think it's two. They're two separate permits. Hmm. I mean, I feel like they sell because some, if, because some if that beer. was I say because if that was the case, then like Stewart's around here would also sell like we got our own brand whiskey too. Well, I, I I think that there there are a couple. I've been in one that's in Amsterdam. It's also it's a beer and liquor store. They sell both. But I don't, it's not common just because of the – there's – I would say there's probably not as much crossover. I mean you might have two in the same plaza, but you you may not – Well, no. No, you're right. Like yeah. they'll be located next to each other, but they're not in the same store. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this one in Amsterdam has both uh, that I've been in. But yeah, it's not very common. So and that's because too you can get alcohol at the grocery store. And you, you can. In convenience stores. Yeah, and in Maryland, that, that is not the case. And you, you can buy it on Sundays. Like, which, we, thank, thank God. <laughs> I would hate to, like, football. If you really need I, it on Sundays, you can't do it in some some states. Uh, they won't let you. Well, football Sunday, come on. I know. I know. And it doesn't make sense. It's, it's crazy. And it's stupid, too, because the South, you know, football's worshipped down the South. Well, you, Billy Bob, you better, you know, bought your 30 packs of Bush and Bud Light. Well, I'm just glad that we don't have that problem, but I do wish that we had this store because it's amazing. 
it has like pretty much every beer that I could think of that I would be looking for. You can get it in packs. You can get it in singles. Uh, I picked up the Stone Ghost Hammer IPA just because I've never seen it before. Um, and it was in their seasonal section, so it must be pretty new. And I dug that one quite a bit. I think I gave it like a four and a half on um, my untapped. Because you actually a, gave it a written review too. Yeah, it's a really good... It's got a very odd and distinct character to it that I liked quite a bit. Um, and it's not super heavy either. Uh, it's named after the night shift workers at Stone Brewery who have to deal with the clanging of pipes because the pipes expand during the night and it makes a ghostly hammering sound, i.e. the Ghost Hammer IPA. So uh, if you can find that, check it out because it's, it's really good. I would recommend it. Um, and we don't get a lot of stone down here, so... We get the Arrogant Bastard. We get Arrogant time. Bastard, and that's it. So uh, I was really interested in trying this, and, and it it tickled my fancy for sure. Um, the other thing that I tried down there um, was the Heavy Seas Tropicannon, which is a grapefruit and blood orange style IPA. And it was very heavy on both the blood orange and the grapefruit, which is kind of a different story from the the ones that we've had on the show because a lot of times there's that overpowering um, hop nature to these IPAs and they barely have any blood orange or uh, grapefruit. But I would say that's pretty much the opposite for this Heavy Seas Brew. Uh, the Tropicannon features a lot of citrus flavor to it and then there's there's only just a tad bit of hops towards the to, towards the end of the drink so um it's almost like a fruit juice in a way like as you're drinking it it's very 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 fruity and then you get that hop character towards the end um so it was a very interesting mix that i got down there in maryland uh but the one that i brought for back for us today is from denizens brewing company and that is in silver spring maryland and these come in a four pack 16 ounce cans tall little tall boys there and uh, it is called the Lowest Lord English-style ESB Ale. Now, if you've listened to the podcast previously, you know that we talk a lot about ESBs, but we never really have one on the show because they're not very common anymore. Um, not very many people make them year, you know, year-round or like even in seasonal packs. Um, so it's not something that we have on here very often. Uh, but we I do. Think, in, I think we've had it on I don't, here. I, yeah, I don't know if we've ever had one on here. No. Uh, which is unfortunate because we like them quite a bit. They are a very tasty blend of <clears throat> like a like an English style ale and a pale ale. They they kind of come together, and there's not really a huge separation between what's a regular, what's considered like an American pale ale and an English pale ale. Like there's you know I w- I don't know if if I would even categorize them as such. They're they're very very similar, um, but the ESB just has a a little bit of a different quality to it with its malts. Uh, because an English ale, if you've ever had it, is somewhat different than what we consider an ale in the United States. Um, they have different characters to them, and I almost prefer like the ESB to the American Pale Ale. Well, because the American Pale Ale's got more of a hop characteristic. To it's it. almost become overpowering with all the hop yeah. flavor that they've they've been putting in Pale Ales now. I mean, an English style Pale is a little bit is more you know for the most part is more balanced with malts and hop. It's nuanced. Yeah. Good use of the word nuanced. <laughs> um, and I, and again, I, cause 
I'm talking about the difference in, you know, the difference between like an English style and I mean, it, yeah, an extra special bitter in ESB. Um, between between that and ESB and a pale ale, I, um, the difference isn't much. I mean, to me, though, I'd say the main difference is just kind of an overall, the multi characteristic of it, like how multi the beer comes across. Like, I, even though, like, a English style pale, pale ale has a better balance between hops and malt than, say, an American pale ale, which is more hop forward, um, it's saying ESB is a little bit more, more malty. You get, like, the best of both worlds. It's malty, but it also does have a hop characteristic, too, where you get both of them kind of in a sh- strong but not overwhelming presence. So, like, the hop characteristic, and this is very forward and present in the front, but it's not, it's not overly hoppy. It's not like an IPA. Yeah. And then you get that nice, multi, bready taste to it at the end. That's more reminiscent of like a regular ale or like even like a porter almost. Yeah. I would say with Denizens though, this, this lowest Lord ESB, there's almost a stout presence to the feel of the beer. The mouthfeel. The mouthfeel of it. Um, and even in some some ways, the taste of it, it was very br- kind of biscuity uh, taste to it. But mostly in the mouthfeel, this almost tastes like it has a widget in it, like a Guinness can. Because it is so creamy on the mouth. It, it sounds which, suggestive here. Well, let's say, but... which, 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 when you drink a pale ale, I never drank a pale ale before, whether it be an American style pale ale or an English style pale ale. I'm like, ooh, that's, that's nice and creamy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so this has almost like, you know, a, somewhat of a stout characteristic. I would say that the end of this beer does have the more of the hoppy character that, I, I, that comes me, out. For me, it's the front. Oh, really? The front of it has more of your hoppy character the, for you? To me, the front is totally hop forward. So, like, for me, my taste palette-wise is hot forward, and then you get the maltiness, the breadiness, and then the finishing touches that, you know, creamy mouthfeel. Yeah, I can see. I, get, I can see the hop being at the front of it, if depending on how you are tasting with your palate. Um, this is almost showing exactly how people, like, describing, you know, drinks and stuff is total bullshit. <laughs> it's very different for everybody. Yeah. Do you taste the hints of fig and clove? Well, the Denizens can says that the tasting characters are floral, herbal, which by the coffee way, and biscuit. I don't get a floral taste to it by fu- not not very much at all. I think by that it's supposed to be the hops. But floral is such a all beers like even like if you're drinking like a fucking pilsner now, like here's a floral characteristic to this beer. When I think floral, I think like chamomile. Well, no, so something do, like that. Or, no, I agree. Like that's what I would think too. But like again, that's what I'm saying. It's a catchword. It's just like thrown in. Like it's not. It's not just them. It's every everybody. You could have like, you could have a Pilsner Urkel, and they're like, spear has a nice floral character. It's like, yeah. It's like, oh, you mean the grass? Like that? The, you got? <laughs> yeah, you you know? Yeah. Used to burn to. Yeah, I know. I mean, I don't get much of a floral tasting note from this one, but um, definitely hoppy and also heavily malty and with that you know almost stout like mouthfeel uh very interesting blend i would say and i like it quite a bit i think it's a very tasty beer no i agree this is uh, this 
that hadn't been 90 degrees the past four days, I would say this is absolutely great. This is like a perfect fall beer. Yeah, it really is. Um, I'm pleasantly surprised, especially since we just went to the store yesterday after we saw Atomic Blonde and um, you couldn't find anything because you were so dispirited and bored with beers around here lately. So it's either watermelon. I don't like watermelon beers. Uh, No, thank you. I don't like because I don't really care for the taste of watermelon. And I think artificial watermelon is even miles worse. Um, IPAs that I like I've said a thousand times. I'm, I'm again. It's not that I don't like IPA. I'm just IPA'd out. Like if I were to see like, hey, we got a new pale ale. I'd hop on that in a second. I mean, it's just like a standard American pale ale or standard English pale ale. Because like, what? Wow. That that that's a that's a rare Pokemon right there. You know. Yeah. Um. That's why I've been like buying like Miller Lite of late, like just constantly, because it's like, eh. I don't know if, well, there's nothing in the crash market right now around here that I really care, you know, spend a lot of money on, because it's all this just the same stuff. So I'm like, I'll just drink Miller Lite then, I guess. Yeah. Have my cheaper beer and just kind of enjoy being relaxed, you know, refreshed and not totally disappointed. <laughs> So I'm glad that I was able to find this because it was a hit. Next week we're doing Colt 45. Yeah, <laughs> going back to the 40s. Um, all right. So <laughs> we should do we should do a film from the 40s while drinking while 40. drinking a 40. Do 40s month. Amazing. <laughs> Try different. Like this week we got Old English. This week we got Colt 45. This week we got Hurricane. Oh, I'm sure you could find. Plenty of forties to do. You would not. You would not run out around a- here. You got no. You would have an endless supply. Yeah, yeah. So I'd, that would not be that fun. I, I don't think. No, I, I hate. It'd malt. be miserable. I hate malt miserable. Liquor. <laughs> I hate malt liquor. <laughs> All right, let's take a break. We'll come back and we will talk about Atomic Blonde. Thank you for saving me today, Doctor. Of course. I see you're having some issues. Yeah, it all started when I ran out of podcasts to listen to. I felt anxious, alone, and even scared. It happens all too often. Podcast deficiency disorder. It can be a serious struggle with no answer in sight. Until now. Introducing Nerdy Words from Geek Productions. Through intense peer review studies, the Nerdy Words team have developed the perfect formula to finally defeat all symptoms of PDD. With just one episode a week, your feelings of helplessness through lack of podcast satisfaction will be a thing of the past. With heavy doses of off-the-cuff, barely put-together thoughts about all things nerdy and beyond, your PDD will melt away. Side effects include frustration at hosts' inability to accurately quote facts, annoyance at their often bitchy attitudes, and inability to understand them through their drunken slurs every five episodes. Do not listen if you are nursing pregnant or may become pregnant. Comics, movies, anime, video games, and much, much more with Nerdy Words. Fridays on acepodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for sticking with us. We're back to talk about Atomic Blonde. So, Atomic Blonde is basically about, and I don't want—I don't know if I should say this right off the bat or not—to ruin anybody's chance at seeing the film. But it's about a double agent. I don't know if you know that about spy thrillers, but generally, there's a double agent in the mix, and Atomic Blonde really fits that to a T. And then it goes further than that, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. 
Um, that's, so where goes, that's where it goes. Atomic. Yeah, I got. Wait, I lied. No, that's where it goes. Blonde. I wish, I wish that I had like um, sound effects set up for this because then I would just do like a badoomch, or or maybe 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 not even that because that that pun does not even deserve that. I this is a great one. No, I wouldn't. It it Matt, goes atomic. No, I no. No, that's worth the rim shot. No, I don't know. I don't think it would even be worth he, a rim shot. It would be lo- lower than that. Well, that's what that's that is. That's a rim shot, Mr. That's Drummer. the lowest of the low. No, I'm saying I'm saying it doesn't even deserve a rim shot. It's lower than that. The pun no. is worse than that. No, that's a great. The pun, pun deserves like a. Wah, 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 eh, no, like that. that's a good. Pun. But I don't have sound effects set up, so you're saved for for this week. I don't know what makes you the holy arbiter of puns, because you're not funny. <laughs> um, all the humor from the show comes from me, so... Um, oh, okay. You're more of the in- analytics. Oh, okay. Yeah. As someone incorrectly pointed out when I was doing a Justin Long impression, giving you credit for it in our Jeepers Creepers episode, you're not the humor. I just accepted it, because I... Because you want... Like, yeah, I was, you, I was fine yeah, with it. Yeah, because cool you it. didn't fucking do anything. I was cool with it. I was like, like, like everything around I here... I let it go. Like, everything around here, you don't do anything. You just take credit for it. Oh, I do everything else <laughs> related to the show, so... Don't give me... Don't, don't, don't go there with that. No. Um, no, but Atomic Blonde is uh, based on a graphic novel called The Coldest City. And it sounds like a Frank Miller story. <laughs> yeah, it does. Basically, it sounds like a um, noir esque uh, spy thriller based on 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, b- separating East and West Berlin. For all the youngsters out there, yes, there was an East and West Berlin, and it was a huge deal in 1989, which is why they got David Hasselhoff to sing. At the fall of the Berlin Wall. If you uh, didn't get the reference from the intro. Yeah, exactly. Um, but basically, Atomic Bond takes place before and during the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, as Charlize Theron's character um, is caught up in this sort of spy game where she's tasked with finding this watch that has a whole bunch of spy information on it that... Doesn't she doesn't want to fall in the wrong hands? And when I say she, I basically mean MI six. MI six, who's funding this mission and and who needs her to get this watch back at all costs. Uh, she's fitted with you know a partner by um, by the name of and I'm going to draw a blank here. David Percival, uh, and that's played by James McAvoy. Um, and uh, basically, their task is to infiltrate. You know, and cross between East and West Berlin because they've got to track down anybody who may have had encounters with the watch itself. And that basically leads them to Soviets and it it leads them to, um, uh, you know, a, a Soviet boss leader who, who KG, may KGB. KGB leader who may have um, the watch. And basically, it's kind of a wild goose chase to find this one watch that has all this information. And then also protect a guy who has memorized the entire contents of the watch. Who is a defector. Yes, he is. And every and pretty much every, everybody who's not part of MI6 wants him dead. Uh, so, I would say that in, in terms of a spy thriller, Atomic Blonde has the plot for it. It definitely has an intriguing premise 
that works in its favor. Well, it's a it's a trope, though. There's it been, is. Yeah, there's been, there's been several um, plots throughout, like spy films and spy, mm-hmm. you know, t- espionage TV, where it's a uh, there's some kind of intel or information out there where it lists every you know like known agent out there and their actual identity and all that kind of information that would make them trackable and uh, you know possibly be uh given up and killed but there's a reason that's a trope because it works it's interesting well no i'm not dis- i'm not disagreeing with that i'm just not saying it's not treading any new ground with that it's a no I mean, again, this is a summer blockbuster film, so again, I'm not expecting it to be, you know, like, what a twist, uh, you know, like a great spy game thriller with it. I'm just saying the overall premise, it's been done quite a bit before. Sure. I think that probably this film's, uh, its biggest downfall is the method of telling that plot, though. Because it makes heavy use of flashbacks. Um, as Charlize Theron's character, Lorraine, is telling this story about her finding the watch to both MI6 and CIA, and CIA being played by none other than John Goodman, one of our, our favorite favorite character performers of... Of all time. And as I pointed out to you, our favorite actors are all J-names. John John Goodman, Jeff Daniels, John Saxon, Jeff Goldblum. Something about... Men- Jeff Bridges? Mm. Yeah, no, I'm just, I was just kidding. I was just mm. naming the next J-name that came mm-hmm. to mind. Josh Hartnett? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that one's a definite. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that, though, this, this film... so. Atomic Blonde is really, it's working in, it's it's actually in present day, not, pre, I don't mean present day as in, you know, 2017, but present day as in after this has all happened, Char- Charlize Theron's character Lorraine is being interviewed by both MI6 and CIA to figure out what the hell happened during this time where she was hunting down the watch and working with David Percival and attempting to transport the um, defector named Spyglass to um, the opposite end of Berlin. Um, She's telling this to them, and that's kind of how we're getting the story through her veiled comments and and her description to uh, the interviewers. And I think that that adds a layer of complication that's really unnecessary for Atomic Bond. Um, the story itself is already sort of convoluted. And as any storyline is, when you have um, people that are, you know, double-crossing others and there's multiple affiliations within um, different groups. No one is trustworthy. Yep, no one is trustworthy. There's always that level of, you know, convolution. And that's kind of inherent to a spy thriller. At the same time, when you add in the fact that we're now getting the story told to us by Lorraine, who is in herself an unreliable, an unreliable narrator, there's a, an added level of confusion and unnecessary convolution that really doesn't add much to the plot whatsoever. 
Um, it's not like it's and again. It's not like the confusion can be a bad thing. Again, it's always you know to have red herrings and you know being mis you know misleading the audience. It's although right. if it's done well, this so, isn't so I, like with like Usual Suspects. What makes it so great is because the twist at the end for the time and Kevin Spacey being the unreliable narrator. And giving that whole interview with the police about what happened and who Kaiser Soze really is, you know, it's done well. And, like, you know, it builds and builds. And then you find, you know, then you find out, like, oh, he was bullshitting. He was lying. He was unreliable. He is, you know. It's like, so tricking the audience is fine and dandy. You just got to be artful and tactful about it in a way that's not, like, we're, it's either too easy to, you know, pick up on. Or it's like, I, I don't give a shit about what's going on with that part. I think, unfortunately, for Atomic Blonde, there's a little bit of both going on there. No, there, no and there definitely is in this both. It's obviously, you know, like... Spoilers. <laughs> I guess we should throw that out there now. Spoilers, if you haven't seen Atomic Blonde, um, don't listen through the rest of this episode, I guess. Because you're, you're, you're inevitably going to hear the actual... But at the same crux time, of the but, film. But at the same time, like, again, if you, like, know anything just about, like, kind of, like, how storytelling these days goes, it's like, of course, like... Right, right. It's yeah, not... it's, it's kind of it's kind of foreseen, but I still want to throw the spoilers out yeah. there just to make sure that no one is really, you know, heavily going into Atomic Blonde thinking, like, I don't want to know anything. Don't, don't let them say Blood and Black Rum Podcast ruined it for them. <laughs> uh, but so spoilers for that. But anyways, yeah, what you were saying... Um, it's kind of it's it it's not really a surprise when it comes out that the person that Lorraine's supposed to be working with the most, her partner in this, David Percival, is actually a guy that's been setting her up the whole time and working with the KGB to get this watch. And I would say that it's not really so much of a big deal that we can see this coming. You see it from the first second you meet him because you know he's a. Uh... Like, as I said, he's a fucking walk-off from, like, Green Street Hooligans. Like, oh, soccer fight, oh, you know, gonna get drunk and fight, and, you know, piss and rowdy and all that after the fucking Tottenham game. He's a regular old bloke. Yeah. And, um, yeah, but I, I, I don't know, that you don't know that from the very beginning. Just the way he the is, but again, like, it, but, but just the way, you know, you can tell, like, you know, like, okay, yeah, he's gonna be... Shifty on. He's gonna be something. He's not gonna, gonna be, be something. He's not trustworthy. Yeah. And then he when stands you, out. And then when you know you, um, when you you know um, when Charlie Theron you know realizes, which by the way we're supposed to be having a counter if we have how many times we mispronounce her name. Forgot about that. Mm-hmm. But um, when she realizes you know that he's been keeping you know setting her up and like you know having the KGB tail her and stuff and sh- when she finally catches up to him and kills him you know cuz you're supposed to think like oh he's the double agent he's the one that you know this as what the code word was satchel the double agent that's you know been working been, been working both for MI6 secret, and then in the KGB in the KGB but you know but for the KGB and it makes sense because like he's been you know, selling secrets to the KGB because he wants to keep the balance of power of like, you know, of what's going on. But then we find out it wasn't him. 
Yeah, he was doing all that stuff, but he wasn't the du- actually the double agent. He was just a shitty person. Yeah, he was just a bad guy that apparently wanted the watch for himself. It, it's not. It's not even really. There's not much to go on for this character because we already know almost from the very beginning that he's not working with Lorraine, that there's, you know, there's something going on about him. So I think that the biggest problem with Atomic Blonde is not only that we can see you, you can see the twist coming, but not well, again, but it's not, not even really a twist at all. And it's, it's like the whole film is leading up to that for no apparent reason. But no, but it's not even that though. Again, we know early in the film that he met with Spyglass mm-hmm. and you know, the defector that had knows had memorized everything on that watch all the agent's information and he had met with him to try to get you know to get Percival to get him across the east german border into west germany and then like 20 minutes later when he finally Percival finally meets Shirley Steron he's like oh i never met the bloke so like you already know like he's yeah. li- he's lying to her he's you know withholding information you know it quickly yeah but at the same, but again, at the same time, like the whole like, oh no, it, we find out, oh Charlize Theron's the, she's actually Satchel. She had it all set up. That she, you know, was actually working with the KGB. Right. And then we find out, no, she wasn't. She's a triple she, agent. She's a, yeah, she's actually a triple agent. She's working for CIA. I mean. <sighs> That's, like I said, with the plot being so convoluted and so unnecessarily jumpy with its flashbacks and flashback-backs, you know, you not only do you go back in time, but then you go back further in time because for whatever reason you need to know what she was told by MI6 previously. Uh, that all adds, I think if, I doesn't think... add up to anything that really makes it necessary for us to have those moments. Um I'd be, then, fi- I'd be fine more with the, like that whole direction if it wasn't done through like the whole interview style, like the whole like we gotta do like a Tarantino style. Yeah, like, jumping like you know. I think around. that's I think that's my biggest issue too. I don't even I don't care that we know that David Percival has something going on right away. I don't care that it's pretty easy to figure out that David Percival is probably gonna be a double agent. I don't care even that you know we it's pretty evident that Charlie Theron is is probably. A do- at least a double agent and most likely a triple agent or working with multiple organizations. I don't even care that all of that is really pretty evident from the very beginning of the film. What I care about is that the the breaks in the film and in the, the action where we jump forward in time to present time where Charlie's is, is character Lorraine is being interviewed. I care that those moments really take you out of the the whole rest of the film. They take you out of the action. They unnecessarily give you information that you already can glean from just watching what's happening during the story. And it just unnecessarily adds confusion to an otherwise pretty straightforward film about a spy thriller film for sure, but one that most people could easily parse if they have any sort of knowledge of how a spy thriller goes one of my main problems too is doesn't it really explain like again like she's a trip so at the end she's you find out she's a triple agent she's been working for the cia and been partnered with john goodman the entire time playing you know mi6 and the kgb off each other 
What I don't like is just like how like she, like she just like says after she kills the one um Russian KGB agent in Paris when they meet um Bremovich Bremovich how she's like I just want my life back and I wasn't gonna give you the list and yeah you know I'm Satchel and I know you were trying that you already knew that I was gonna betray you um. What I don't like is after, like, when he shoots, like, she kill, it kills everyone in the scene. So, like, cool little action scene. My, my main par- problem is that, like, the whole part of that, it's like a bad Lupin movie. One of the bad Lupin TV specials, or, like, a bad episode of Lupin. Where at the end, it's like, well, how did Lupin get out of that? I knew, I knew everything ahead of time on the Mastermind. And, but you don't actually get to see, like, how, I mean, the, how the, all that came together. By the end, it's like, okay, she's a triple agent, but it's like, you don't really see how, like, okay, how is that all masterminded? How did... Right. How, not, you don't get anything behind that. She's like, yeah, I knew the whole, like, you know, like, ah, you know. It's, yeah, there's kind of like a deus ex machina here to all of what Lorraine does in that she just seems to be, like, unstoppable. Throughout all of the Atomic Bond, she's just overpowered, and she really, even though she's getting thrown around by, like... 300 pound guys but it's, it's not even like a problem because that's mostly if you look, look back at like, like the bond films you know i'm a big james bond fan i mean most of the bond films bond's pretty you know you you'll there are very few instances within the bond canon that you're sitting there kind of like oh you kind of feel like he's actually in danger there's like none of the roger moore bond films you're sitting there like oh he might die in here you don't right. get any of that you know, you get that in, like, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, like, Jordan Lazenby, but for the most part, you never really experience it. So I'm fine with, like, the whole, like, you know, they establish her to be a... Cause they even say, like, she's an escape artist. Which, as I told you, they should have just made her goddamn codename, like, Houdini. She just, you know, is able to, like, oh, I'm kind of fucked right now, and, you know... <laughs> what? Able to fight out of, you know, like, eight-man struggle. Right. And I'm fine, and I, again, I have no problem suspending my disbelief and accepting that from, like, you know, it's an action movie. I have no problem with that. My problem is, like, when you, like, have the reveal, like, she's a triple agent and she's been working for the CIA, and you're like, okay, I'm fine with that twist, but how did you get there? Right. And really, the only clue, but this is the big clue of the film that tips you off to that. Is the only real clue that they gave you to that that she's been working for the CIA? There's a scene in the middle of the film where she's at the Berlin Wall on the west side and she's talking to John Goodman. Because she was sent on this mission by MI6 to find Percival to have him locate the, wa- the watch and figure out who Satchel is and to find Spyglass and get him out of there. So the only real hint that's saying, like, she's actually working, like, has ties to, some kind of tie to the CIA throughout the most part, throughout, for the most part of the film is, why is she talking to John Goodman? Yeah, it doesn't really, the film. Because there's no reason, because there is no reason for John Goodman to be there, because when she's talking to John Goodman about what's going on and how he's saying you need to get this done ASAP because this this is going to be a new country pretty soon, you know, things are changing. Yeah, there's there's, there's, he, he, there's no reason for him. why is he there? Yeah, yeah it doesn't he's not give working. You, uh, he's not working with MI6. When she gets sent the mission, it's not like oh he, the CIA is here getting like you know with us two to cooperate on this mission. He's just there. Yeah, it doesn't give you a, an any inkling why 
they would be meeting there. Like there, there's no reason for it besides her, him giving her more information from CIA yeah. rather than MI6 or anything like that. Or so, Percival yeah. or yeah. So, all right. So I don't want to spend that, that much time on the plot, but to, to really sum up, it's prop. The plot is probably the most problematic part of this film. Um, I don't think it's particularly a good enough spy thriller to warrant some of the extraneous information that we're given within the context of like her explaining her mission to MI6 and CIA. It's, there's just not enough there that really makes it worth the effort and worth the confusion that that creates. Uh, with that said, what did you think of the action sequences in this film? I think it's really good. I think that's the action sequences of this film are really good. I think most of the this film is pretty pretty high octane. It's and it's action. Yeah, and, I think it's more it's it's um more action oriented towards the middle to end of the film. I I found that the opening parts of the film were a little bit slow. I I thought like, you know, the first maybe half hour 45 minutes are a little slow and then after that it starts to pick up I'm not saying it's Fury Road. No, I know. <laughs> I know that. But I, I just thought that a little bit of it was as, was kind of slow. But once it gets going, it does start to pick up speed. But overall, quickly. even like that, the I think the action f- scenes in this film are really well done. Yeah, I agree. I think they have some interesting um, action bits to it. Like There's a whole kind of like rope scene aspect, you know, that they have with uh, kind of actually is reminiscent of a Wonder Woman's type lasso. Um, but there's a, a rope scene to it. There's a... Uh, That's been done a thousand times. No, I, I agree. Uh, there's of, like, a, of like tying a rope to somebody then jumping off a balcony and then have their body dragged and slammed into the rail so they can, you know, kind of... Yeah. That's... It's a it's a great it's a great moment, though. I think that the, the fight scenes are choreographed really well. Um, there, I think the best scene by far in this is the stairwell scene. That's pretty much a long cut of fighting in the stairwell and then afterwards in a uh like a what apartment. is like an apartment complex uh like a room that is has pretty much all destructible environment to it um that almost seems somewhat improvised for this film specifically because of the long cuts for each of the action scenes like these these scenes go on for long periods of time without cutting and that's a really difficult thing to do, especially for action in terms of like everything block has to be blocked out the correct mm. way. And, and, um, you know, making sure that everybody hits in the right spot. Um, really impressive. So I can't imagine like how many times they would actually run through these scenes, like full tilt, you know, like, all right, you're going to, we're going to throw you into this, uh, f- the 15th dresser that we've built for this. You know <laughs> what I mean? Something like that seems very, um, improvised in the way that that's done but i think it's really well charlie Theron does a lot of her own stunts i don't know I, it's awesome i mean I'm, I'm i mean for the most part every stunt that you see is clearly her in that stunt so it's it's great i mean she does a great job with this and i i would say for them the majority of atomic bond she's really leading the way for this film she's she's the strong character that that and the strong actor that does the work in this and she's she's a great presence in this film. Um, really well done for all of her action sequences. I think that stairwell scene to me is 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 one of the most fantastic of just out 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 and out ridiculous like 
action scenes, throwing people downstairs. Um, well, not only that, the people she's fighting, it's like, man, there are, these people have hurry, of very hardy German and Russian stock. She stabs them in the throat, like, four times, like, knocks lamps into their heads, beats the shit out of them, shoots them in the gut twice, and they're still coming back for more. And it's like, Jesus Christ. Don't, don't like, fucking mess with the KGB. Yeah. That's the uh, theme of the film. <laughs> Of the movie here. Well, that's uh, what, that's for, what, for layman's. Well, that's what the Soviets would have you to say, like, hey, that's don't, right. don't fuck with Mother Russia, you know. But, I mean, I think th- those scenes are really strong. Every every action scene in here is a really great set piece for this film. And it, it's almost like the plot is kind of just shuttling the, 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 viewer, action the viewer along until you get to the next action sequence. But that's fine. No, I think it's fine, but I just I just think that that it's unfortunate that the plot couldn't be just a little bit stronger because I do like the action scenes. One thing I will say about the action scenes that really got kind of graded on me after a while is the fact that most of them are set to '80s soundtracks. Well, I was instantly I instantly pointed that out of how like because they'd have it like audible like an audible like song from the '80s, like especially the late '80s blasting, and then like. They do like a shift in the scene, and all of a sudden now it's more muted. Like, oh, it's actually going on in the background of what's happening. Right. Like when you have like in the opening with the KGB agent running down the British agent and getting the watch originally, and you got the song playing loudly, and then as soon as he opens the car door, then it's muted. Like, oh, it's coming from the car. It's like that's fucking annoying. Yeah, I will say that despite the fact that I really enjoy neon 80s, I like synth pop soundtracks, I like that throwback, um, I felt like a lot of the song styles and choices in Atomic Bond didn't fit in very well. I wasn't a fan of music every single time in action I scene. Fit, I thought it fit in well. I, I just don't think you needed it as prevalent as it was. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that every act, or I would, I shouldn't say every because the there are scene did not right. There are a few scenes that do not have um, a soundtrack to them, and to their benefit, I think they didn't need them, and and that's why they worked so well because they didn't have that. Um, all of this, the scenes that do, and the, and they're pretty much front loaded to the to the beginning of the film. I it just became it became sort of like a, a distraction that. Okay, there's um, you know, this song playing while she's fighting people. The song almost was a distraction to actually watching the action because it, I don't know, I just, I just found it to be, it take, it took me out of the that immersion. I was not super thrilled with some of the, and like I said, I don't mind the soundtrack itself. The soundtrack wasn't wasn't bad. It definitely steals from a lot of like the 80s golden music um and really if there's one thing that i would criticize about it is that there's not enough deep cuts on the soundtrack most of it is very what i mean if you could if you think of 80s songs that fit into the style ladies ladies style you probably will think of the ones that are in this film I think that's the only issue with it is that I wish they would just go a little bit further. The only two like that are what real- you what you said were um, mostly you know the the top hits of the. Oh of no! The like period. I said they they literally like from like eighty seven to eighty nine probably took a 
Billboard Top 200 chart. Like, all right, let's pick you know pick our songs. Yeah, I mean, outside of Under Pressure, which does not fit at the end. That's true. And London Calling when she's going, you know, going to Paris. Um, those two things are like, my God, really? It's like kind of like they threw them in there. But other than that, like the soundtrack, I think fits well with the tone and the style of the film. I think they just over rely on it a bit too much. Like I'm fine with like the whole car chasing. Like they started playing Iran. I thought if by a flock of seagulls. I thought that was pretty, you know, nice and nifty and. Like, the whole scene where the KGB just beating a fuck, you know, beats a fucking German sh- uh, teenager to death with a skateboard with 99 Luft balloons playing. Like, you know, that fit well within tone. That's another problem, though. You mentioned 99 Luft balloons, and, and that's used twice, and I, that gets on me, too. I was fine. Well, the first time. The first time's okay. The second time is well, more it's downbeat. Well, because it's a remix, and. It just doesn't fit what's going on. It's kind of like, oh, we're heading into the third act. We just got done because it's like we just got, yeah, because yeah, it's like you just got done with the second. You just got done done with the second act. So it's like, okay, so we're kind of at like the down point. Of, like, yeah, you know. I I wasn't a big fan of of reusing that. Song. No, I wasn't either. But again, again, like I said like like at certain points it works well. Like I'm fine with like the opening with like the how they had like the that eighty sound. Like I can't remember. I'm trying to because like I said, there's so there. They played so there many songs. So many songs. Yeah, I like I, I've lost track. Like I've lost track of like so, some of them. So like in the opening though, it fit really well with what was going on. But then as soon as like, he opened the door, like oh, it's like the radio in the car. It's like that's fucking stupid. And they did the same thing with a flock of seagulls when they did the car chase, and then after the car flips and you know all that, then it's like oh, it goes back to being mute, more muted in the foreground instead of prevalent. It's like you can have it like just like. Have it one way or the other. Don't. Well, know. I think your biggest issue with that is that it doesn't make sense for one thing. the 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 music would not be loud, and then when you step out of the car, then get muted. It 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 just kind of seems backwards in this scenario. Well, no, I mean, I mean, the way of sounding from the car when he opens the door makes sense, but at the same time, it's when the song's playing before that. Exactly. That's it's, what, that's it's not I mean. that you're hearing it from the perspective of the car. You're hearing it from the perspective. Of like this is the soundtrack to the film, and then as soon as he opened, like I, it would have been totally cool for him to be running the fucking MI six agent down with it just sounding like he's in the car, like that on the radio. Yeah, exactly. That totally wouldn't have been fine. And, that, and then it can open up afterwards, but with yeah, with like it's you know, kind of the backwards you're, yeah, you're way doing, of doing you're that. You're doing an ass backwards. Yeah, I agree. I think the soundtrack is a little bit problematic there too. Um, and no Duran Duran. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Um, so we haven't talked about, um, well, first of all, the stylistic choices of the film in terms of the neon lighting, um, which plays in heavily, you know, during clubbing scenes. Um, so, film like, in the ages. Basically, go- the hotel uh, that Charlie Theron's character Lorraine is staying at. Well, fuck it, yeah. What room did she get? Yeah, the 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 best room apparently. Mi six pays for. <laughs> For things, and they, they basically they're just like write a blank check. The, the, the honeymoon suite, you know. Yeah, for, really, for for real. For rave driven. I I gotta say that I'm a huge fan of the neon and very colorful cinematography. So in this sense, Atomic Bond fits in with my my uh, aesthetics. Yeah. Um, I think that it works pretty well. 
And I don't think that the neon's overused because I do think you get a good juxtaposition between the neon styles of like where Charlie Theron's character is staying and then the kind of gritty downtown areas of Berlin that are obviously not ideal for anybody, which would be why they're lobbying so much for the Berlin Wall to come crumbling down because of the KGB influence in the areas. The specifically East Berlin. Right, exactly. I think that that works really well because there is that juxtaposition and they, they don't overuse the neon lighting. It's it's in certain areas, but um, only in those moments where it's necessary, like clubbing scenes where uh, Lorraine and uh, the French... Um, the French operative uh, Delphine LaSalle, who's played by Sophia Butella, they're meeting in that club. I think the lighting works really well in those areas, so it fits right in with my my aesthetics and uh, my taste for for that sort of thing. Um, but I think that, um, <coughs> excuse you. Yeah, I know. Well, that's what happens when you're sick. That's right. You 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 are sick. I forgot about that. Um. So I I think that those neon the neon works pretty well. What about you? I mean, what, what did you think for Atomic Blonde? Is it is the neon too much? No, I've said before when we were reviewing Ghost in the Shell, I like the style. How about the graffiti layover for the uh, um the transitions between you know East and West Berlin or where's past out? and present? Where's well. By past and present, you're talking about days, a couple of days, so it's not that big of a... Yeah. You're no, making it, I mean, it sound like it's years different. Like, it's well, tw- but, 20 years later, it's like, this is what happened. Well, I mean, but the transitions in this are graffiti writing saying, you know, two days before, a week later, stuff like that, that's that's written in almost a block text that you'd find in a comic. I mean, I, again, I'm, I think it's a nifty idea, because it's, it's, it's going for the graphic novel aesthetic i think though it's way too overdone though i think you know you don't need to be checking in every time you're hopping between east and west berlin um you can just tell the difference by how kind of people are acting around there one thing that (laughs) i mean one thing i love about this film is when you see any of the action happening on the streets of berlin and all of the onlookers are just like yeah guy getting run over by a car that's pretty normal no reaction from them whatsoever. It's great. Just another day in Berlin. That's right. Yeah. I mean, they're used to it, I guess. That's supposed to sell the fact the KGB of the KGB influence in that area. Yeah, whatever. People sniping at us. Just another day. Just keep marching. Um, Alright, so um, we talked about that. How about... The uh, sexual tension between Lorraine and uh, Delphine LaSalle. The lesbianism, if you will. A, it really is just there. I, yeah. I, there's, there's, <laughs> there's, I didn't really... Th- um, there's nothing meaningful to it. It's, it really is just there. I gotta you say get, that I get, think... You, I, get, you get to see some, you know, finger-banging action and, you know, some... I'm all yeah. about that finger-banging. You know, little, little, t- you know, some titty sucking, but other than that, it's like, you know. <laughs> I mean, though, not, though I am. I, I'm, I'm more concerned about Lorraine's, you know, ice bath that, like, she looks like a football player after a game, like, she's got to sit in an ice bath for three hours to, you know, you see her do that. Unclench. Like, like, five times, and it's like, it, that is not comfortable. 
Well, you know, the, the thing that I, I've got to say that I appreciate both Charlize Theron and Sophia Butella appearing in the buff because I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, deny either of them the fact that they are sexy. Um, but at the same time, I do think that that lesbianism is really unnecessary for this film. I, I don't think that what the filmmakers are saying in that it's more of a sense of how... Yeah, I love how you're saying, too, lesbianism. Like, it's like something like, you just decide, like... Lesbianism. I've just decided to join the cult of lesbianism. It's a lesbian cult. I don't feel like the what the filmmakers are saying, that it's not here to titillate, but it's here to show how... Lorraine is not really attached to any one person that she's using people for information. I don't think that that works here. I don't think that that's really, that's conveyed. I don't really feel like you get the sense that Lorraine doesn't care in some way for Delphine. I know you, you think differently. You, you think that she doesn't really care for her. No, There's cause not when really she, that no, much emotional. No, cause when Delphine's like, Oh, If you do, like, you know, when you say something truthful, you have, like, a different squint in your your eyes. Like, oh, I used to try to be mindful of that and, like, get me killed. No, it's total bullshit. I didn't buy that for a second. No, no. I I disagree. I think that there is something there that they're going for. I feel like that just the way that... No, just because by the time the film ends, there's, uh, there's nothing... She's over it, and she's happy. The mission's well, sure, over. She's over. And she it. did she her. Jo- and she she did her job. She's back, going back to Langley. She's when she's talking to John Goodman. It's more like they're, you know, she hasn't. She doesn't get it. She doesn't care. Because well, they, because sure, the whole whole crux of the relationship between like her and John Goodman is he calls her in the beginning a cop. He called she calls him a cocksucker under her breath, and she he's like, "What'd you say?" And at the end of the film, he's like, "Cocksucker, really." And she's like, yeah, I know. This is, just, this is what we do. This is what we yeah, do. Yeah, I, I don't agree with that though. I don't. I no. don't think that there. I don't think that you can write that off because there's. Well, first of all, there's been days since she's been dead. She only knew her for a few days. So you're right. I don't think there's a strong connection between them. It's not like a, a like a uh, you're my soulmate type bond. But at the same time, I do. I don't. I don't agree that there's not. There's nothing there between them. I think there's something there. And I think that that is a reasoning behind her kind of vengeance-fueled execution of David Percival. No, because he no, 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 no. This is where you're wrong. He knows the list. He does know the list. So that means he knows who Satchel is, which is her. Yeah, but so that there, he's she's not killing him. Like he didn't have to kill her. He's she's. Killing him to cover his, cover her tracks and yeah, but set the, him up. The context of that for her saying you didn't have to kill her does not. Which we should preface make... that they, uh, David Percival kills Sophia Butella. Right, strangles her the uh, garrote wire while she's in lingerie listening to fucking like a Madonna song with her headset. As soon as she calls him up to threaten him, like I know how the game is played. I'm going to slowly pack my shit. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I don't. I don't <laughs> agree. I don't think the context. Um, agrees with your line of thinking. I I don't think that it, that that would be that wouldn't even be a line at that point. She wouldn't even have said that to David Percival if there wasn't some sort of attraction there. No, cuz again, the whole the whole thing at that point that that whole in exchange they're having is like she's about who's double crossing who. Yeah, but we got to agree play- disagree because she's playing up like again, she's he loves to double cross. 
So does she. And they even bring it. She, again, I don't, again, I don't think she meant anything to her. She was, she was using her to get information. Then why would she, why would she say that? You didn't have to kill her. Why would she care? Because she didn't have to, in the grand scheme of things, you don't have to, like, essentially care for somebody. Be like, you shouldn't have killed them. Yeah, but, I mean, that, she's a spy. He's a spy. She realizes that sometimes that is the, 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 you have to. There's no other option. But here, she realized, she, she was, she almost made it a, uh, like, a emotional deal. Like, that you didn't have to. No, for, for, I, I, in, in, in terms of spy games, in terms of, uh, of like what actually happened, yeah, he probably did need to kill her. So there was an emotional st- stance to her to her saying that there there was there was something there. No, I I I, I, I got to disagree with you there. I I don't agree with you on no, that I, at I, all. She didn't give a shit. I don't know. I guess we'll throw that out to the listeners. What do you think? Did, did she there's nothing care? in her character shown throughout this film that shows she gives a fuck about no, anything or anything. She's well, I would actually. Yeah, I mean, I would actually argue that. You can't really tell. You can't but really that tell. Makes, but that, again, that makes sense, though. Whether, again, if she really cares, though, at the end of the day, if she, all she's showing is a fucking blank poker face that she doesn't give a fuck. You gotta remember. That's what, that's what ends up winning at the end you of have, the day. But you have to remember, too, that this story is being told to people from her perspective. So why include it if it doesn't really matter? Because she's misleading them. But she's not. She's not. Yeah, really, she did. Cause she that lied, doesn't matter to them. Because she lied to them at one point when they asked her if, we she, gotta, if she knew about. I, I can't remember the specific plot point, but they asked her, like, did you know about this? And we knew she knew about it. And she lied to them. Yeah. So you knew she lied to them. So, so, again, going back to the whole unreliable narrator things, there's things that happen throughout the story that you can obviously. She was probably lying to them. There's probably several things that. We were gained throughout, because again, all, essentially what we're told through the flash, everything's a flashback essentially, because it's all taking place through this interview standpoint. Is probably most of the, everything she could have told throughout this story is total bullshit. It could be, and that's why I'm saying why it it wouldn't matter if she told that part of the the, the story or not. It wouldn't matter to them. It doesn't matter. So that's why it seems like it's more emotional that more emotional baggage rather than anything to make else. him seem like it again to make him seem more because she had the, she had the dirt on him she had the photographs that showed him meeting with a kgb officer to sell the wall you know true so she didn't need to make him look at, like any more of a monster because she already had the she already had the the proof needed to to do it to kill him it but did, again, it didn't she, matter if she, but again if he, he got he got agent. a bit ba- he essentially, as the departed would call, a bagpipes and bullshit funeral. He got carted off to England in a dra- draped flag casket. He was going to be celebrated as a hero. He was. He was. So to point that out, like, hey, he killed. Like, yeah, she may have done something like like that would have, you know, incriminate him. But at the same time, she was a French intelligence officer. A member of NATO. An ally of the U.S. and Britain. Yeah. Uh, MI6, no matter what's really going on, like, isn't really going to be go- rushing t- into the forefront to try to have a French agent killed. They might try using deception to throw him off the scent of certain things, but they're not going Again, the same thing with, like, this. It's not like the CIA was setting out to, like, you know, try to kill British officers. They're doing it to fuck with them and to fuck, you know, fuck with everyone so they can try to have an upper hand on both intelligence agencies, KGB and MI6. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's, 
And it wouldn't do any service to MI6. Like, we gotta kill a French agent. Because if, if the French caught wind of that, they'd be like, hey, one of your agents killed one of ours. Um, We got a really big problem now. Yeah. It's not the same thing between, like, you know, if it was a KGB or whatever. I mean, I just gotta... I, I think we have to disagree because... I don't know that it's. You're looking too hard into the boobs. No, in this. I, I, you're I, guess my, I you're, am. you're mired down in the lingerie and the boobs, and you're like, mm. oh, she, like, oh. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if she actually cared for. No, I mean, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but, <or> not, <laughs> but that's why I'm just arguing with it because I feel like it, it does in the scheme of things indicate that she. I, and I think that there's another reason why they would want to do that is because. For the most part, Lorraine doesn't really have much of a character whatsoever if they didn't give her anything else. She doesn't have to really have a character, though. But, I mean, you, you do in a way because you don't want a completely, like, blank character that the audience follows because then there's no... I mean, it doesn't matter to the she audience. Has a she doesn't matter to them. She has a character. She's an escape artist and she drinks fucking five fingers of vodka. Yeah, and I, I don't <laughs> think that that is strong enough without another, a human aspect to her. To really get an audience to care about her. You get to see the human. You get to see her black eyes and bruises. Yeah, it, I, I just think that that you was... You don't really get to see James Bond bruised I, and... Uh, I think that the the whole Lorraine Delphine thing is added for the audience perspective to actually see her as a person rather than a, like a... Like a, a... Almost like a robot who's just ordered to do these things. You need that human aspect to what, to actually care about her at, at, in terms of what she's doing and, and if she is actually and and then there is that human aspect too of like you want her to be good even at the end when there's that allusion to her being satchel and she could possibly be have been working with the KGB the whole time. So I think you do need that human aspect to her to make the care the, the viewer care about that character. But we agree to disagree. But let's talk about that vodka because that's a thing that occurs throughout this film and it's kind of a Russian stereotype. Um, but the every character in this film downs a lot of vodka and we just don't see the appeal. I actually had a glass of vodka on ice tonight and I, I, I don't get it. I don't see the appeal of... Uh, it wasn't Stoli. It wasn't Stoli. It was Fedka. This movie was sponsored. Their entire budget is brought to you by Stoli and Jack Daniels. But I, I don't see the appeal of vodka on ice. It's it's kind of gross. <laughs> it's syrupy. Well, that's, again, that's probably the brand. I don't remember any vodkas that I've ever drank being syrupy. It was, it's thicker than, I don't know, what I expected, I guess. Because I've never really had vodka straight well, because yeah. it's a miserable experience well, yeah. all around yeah. but i did have it tonight and i wouldn't say that i i wouldn't say that i hated it but i wouldn't say that it did anything for me it there was no value to me doing it i would much rather have a whiskey over ice and i i say that ice being a frozen block of rock rather than an actual ice cube because pussy well, I don't. Yeah, I don't like. I don't like water seeping into my whiskey. Yeah, well. So that's that's why. But I don't see the appeal of this this vodka over ice thing. So it's not. No, but that, it's a thing that happens commonly in movies where like like vodka or whatever, and just like they sit there and pour literally 
like five fingers worth of it and just sit there and like slam it down. It's like nobody does that. At least that I know. Maybe we just don't know cool people. We don't. Know I the, have no interest. We in We don't doing know that. those cool people who are like, "Give me five fingers of vodka." Like, it's just like, I don't see the joy. I don't either. at all. I don't either. Like I, I only I'll tolerate vodka and like mixed drinks. I, I love Moscow Mules, but that's because there's so much shit in there. It's like, yeah, you know, all right, you know, you know, it's different as a cocktail. Vodka on its own to me is the devil, but that's because I I've know. had a bad experiences myself. I'm not throw, a huge fan. Throwing up so hard, I blew up blood vessels in both my eyes. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the, uh, the vodka. So if anybody's watching and you see them downing glasses of vodka, you get ready to have your gag reflex tested. Like it's it's almost like when you see like, like an episode of Intervention and you see like an alcoholic and like you know they can't find alcohol, so they're fucking drinking like Listerine. I would have a much easier time like slamming Listerine than vodka. I agree. Vodka's pretty... M- much, much... Vod- vodka's kind of gross. Tequila, gin, same thing. There's going like... to be some vehement uh, people listening, and they're like, vodka on ice is amazing. Well, probably if it's not Svedka. Well, Svedka's not that bad, really. Your big-ass bottle was like $20. That's a sign already that it's not... <laughs> it's not Mr. Boston. It was $30. That's anyway. different. Yeah, Mr. Boston's the devil. But, um... All right, but anyway, we just had to bring that diatribe up because this film makes well, it look, gonna, makes it looks appealing. But, but no, but not. again, well, it's the same thing like how they smoke cigarettes. It makes you after you watch like a film like this and how they smoke cigarettes. It's like, man, no wonder why a lot of people smoke cigarettes. They just make it's like watching Cowboy Bebop and you got like you know Spike sitting there with like a bent cigarette. It's like, oh, he makes that fucking Marlboro look fantastic. Oh. They weren't $12 a pack around here. I'd run to the store and buy a pack right now. But they're not. Not encouraging smoking, by the way. I am. <laughs> You're an adult. Make your own life choices. <laughs> All right, so uh, out of 10 glasses of vodka, what would you give Atomic Bond? Yes, a Stoli. Oh, I have to narrow it down. I have to say 10 glasses of Stoli vodka. Was there any Smirnoff in here wandering about? I, I'm sorry. I didn't get specific enough. 10 glasses of Stoli no, on I, ice. No, yeah, yeah. Because you're, yeah, no, you can't be. They didn't drink Smirnoff. They didn't drink Svedka. There was no Great Goose, even though I know that wasn't around then. It came out in the 90s, but, you know. Yes. Stoli on ice. It'd be like saying, like, out of like 10. Ten Gentleman Jacks. There was no Gentleman Jack. It was clearly Jack Daniels, you know. There's no Jim Beam or Mila Kunis walking around. This film, I would have loved to see Mila Kunis in this film. Like an Atomic Bond too, with Mila Kunis. Um, so, so ten glasses of Stoli on ice. What would you give Atomic Bond? I'll give it a seven. I I like its style. I like the aesthetic. I like you said. I love the. I do love the neon eighties. Um. So I have no problem with it. I love the soundtrack. I just think at times it's overused and not used properly. But I still admire the effort. I think the action in this film is well done. And for the most part, there's only a couple. I mean, there are a lot of action scenes, but there's only a couple of ones that aren't that great. But for the most part, they're all pretty good. The plot's overly convoluted for... And it, it describes itself as an action Cold War thriller. It's not a Cold War thriller. It's an action film. 
And I think if they just focus more on that and then, then the thrill, you can just make, make it like an action spy film. There's only the mention of Cold War anyway. There's no real. Well, the whole it's the Berlin Wall falling. It's the that's the that's a Cold War. The Cold I War. mean, yeah, technically, but there's. I mean, which, when you're thinking which... Cold War. You're thinking literally like embroiled in the Cold War, and that's the end of. I mean, we're getting towards the end of the Cold War. There's not, and there's well, even it... any any part of the KGB is not really related to Cold War at all. No, it is. It still is because uh, it wasn't. Not wasn't like the Ber- the Berlin Wall didn't fall in the. Oh, there goes the Soviet Union. Still no, took I'm three not. Years. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying like any any relation to the actual Cold War itself. It's basic. It's based on them finding a watch. It has nothing to do with how that affects the Cold War. Well, it does because again, the whole no, it no, it does because I mean, the, yeah. whole, the the whole plot is there's a list of agents. And they could get killed. Whoever has this information, and it's the mi, it's mi six CIA and the KGB. Yeah, playing off that's that's but, Cold War politics and espionage. But it doesn't. That wouldn't matter if it was in the Cold War or any other time period. It would still be a, a thing that you need to track down in terms of. You no, know, well, no, you're right. If that was like say between like the CIA, MI6, and you know the Russian, uh, that's what I'm saying. But, like, but, that, but, that but aspect again, of it doesn't really matter in terms well, of like if it's the Cold War or not. But that's when you do these films. So, so I'm fine with it. My problem is like the whole Berlin. Like, okay, it's only a couple of days before the Berlin Wall falls. This, you know, Germany's going to change because we're going to, you know, they're going to unite back together, and the Soviet Union's on the way out. They're so flippant about that whole, like the whole Berlin Wall part. They're flipping it about, but at the same time, they're way over-utilizing several, like, news, like, clips and videos from the time, and you get to fucking see, like, the one news anchor shot they have about that event happening, they have, it's fucking Kurt Loader from MTV News giving, like, you know, his, like, three-second breakdown on it, which is fucking pathetic, but I mean, like, so, like, I'm fine with the whole, like, it being set during the Berlin Wall, but you don't need, like, the interludes inter- she's walking down the street of, like, here's, like, a video splice of, like, what was going on back then. You don't need that context. The context itself is, like, happening when the it's about to happen. You don't need to have, like, this, like, whole, like, you know, like, ooh, you know. It's kind of like it's connected to actually what really happened, even though it's not. Right. You don't. Just have it set, like, the Berlin Wall is going to fall, like, and just... That's part of the backdrop in the uh, in the setting of the story, not putting it more to the forefront. Like, because when they constantly were doing that, that's that was overbearing. And like, so I I, I didn't like that part. I didn't really like it all. I didn't like the constant like day passes and like here's what's happening at the wall today. You know. Yeah. And it, you yeah, know. it's it's kind of over the top. Um. We didn't really talk about it either. I think acting wise, I think everyone in this film is really good. I think Charlize Theron does a great job, mainly just because of her action scenes. She does a great job. That she could have been total dog shit act, acting wise in this, and I still say she would have done a great job because of her, you know, what she was able to do with the fighting and all of that was just really top notch. But she does a really good job as playing a very disinterested, apathetic character and again like unlike you i i'm i'm fine with that because i think that again that's what she as a a spy that's her that's her modus operandi is to be aloof and disconnected then i think that works for me we that's where we disagree you think she's more connected 
Um, I think uh, James McAvoy, he's good, but he, at the same time, he's pretty annoying. As just being like a, your stereotypical fucking hooligan. I mean, I mean, like some t- bit times he's like kind of comes off as kind of charming and like, ooh, you know. But other times it's like, oh, you're pretty, pretty fucking annoying. And John Goodman's great because he's just fucking John Goodman. He's bearded and beautiful, and he's ready to take on the world. And losing weight too. He's been losing weight for quite a while. He looks good. Long time. Even though he he is still. Uh, relegated to a scene where he's chowing down on a sandwich. A sandwich. And he's like, he's like, you want one? I know. You're hungry? We can I, sneak, I we did get, feel bad for him in that sense because it's almost he, like I, it's, it's almost not, you know, like it wasn't even actual. Like he, it was just like a break in between shots. And the camera was still rolling. It's like, like they just like gave him like a ham sandwich. Like, oh, this is great, Charlie. You want one? Like the the, the food court, you know, it's right. You know, well, either right that or they were like. You, you know, he's lost so much weight, and they were still like, well, you're still technically the fat man on set. So here's a sandwich, and, you know, act like the schlub that you are and offer it to people on, you know, on camera. I've, I felt bad for him in that sense, because he's, he's done a lot of work to lose weight. It's not right to use him as a schlubby man anymore. He's, he's the guy who successfully lost weight. So I, uh, I applaud him for that. All right. Um, I would actually... I, I'm going to be the uh, voice of disagreement here. Uh, and I'm generally not. Generally a lot more forgiving. But I'm going to give this film a six. Um, just because I did not enjoy some of the more uh, musical action sequences. I thought they kind of got grating rather than intriguing. Um, I don't love the flashback sequences that we get. I think that the actual interview is unnecessary so that's an entire portion of the film that's really not it doesn't do much for me at all well after kind of talking about this i'm starting to find that interview part more even more necessary you find it more necessary now yeah it's that just because now it's even building even further onto her being a unreliable narrator and what happened is what is true right exactly i mean it does it does make her an unreliable narrator I don't know. And you wouldn't get that across if the whole film was taking place in real time. I don't know how much it's necessary though of her being an unreliable narrator. What does it matter? Well, at at the end of the at the end of the film, what does it matter that she's unreliable? I I don't I just I don't I'm not saying that it's a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying I don't I don't know that that's even necessary for what the film's trying to get across. Cuz it at at the end of the film, it doesn't really matter how much she is reliable because the only thing that we really know for certain is that she was working for the CIA and that she accomplished her mission. So it it doesn't it, it doesn't even really matter. It doesn't factor into things like how much of what she told is actually truthful or not. I, I don't know. I mean, I I yeah, guess it would be great too. Like if down the line, like one of those agents from my six were like it made a visit to Langley, like, hey, why are you here? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they uncovered. Her. Yeah, like maybe she tries to stay. That, that's that's another thing too about being an atomic blonde in the sense that how Lorraine has that very platinum blonde hair is that every time they use her in a mission, it's like she stands out. In the mission where they have to transport Spyglass across the border, she stands out. It doesn't matter if they're in a sea of people uh, that are kind of 
they're they're marching and they're and they're um protesting. Ri- protesting and rioting. It doesn't matter because none of them are fucking platinum blonde well, like Charlie Theron well, is. To get it wrong that they had the umbrellas. Yeah, but they didn't even know that that was going to happen. It Personal just kind of happened. Know that. She did. Yeah, I just think that that was a terrible. It was that's t- why that's why he ends up being the one shooting. It's a uh, spyglass and not the uh, KGB sniper. Yeah, it's that's- a terrible plan though. It's a t- no. Do not use the blonde woman. The the super blonde woman. Well, she's in Germany. Yeah, <laughs> but that doesn't mean they're platinum blonde like she is. It's a terrible idea. I wouldn't recommend it. The next time they try that. Uh, you know, export attempt. But, um, so yeah, my six out of 10 music sometimes is annoying. Don't like the flashback plots, uh, that, you know, rely on the narration of the actual event. Um, not a, uh, and I think that's, I mean, that's pretty much that, that really factors into my, you know, lower rating because, I just found those those things irritating, um, and I didn't think that they added up to a storyline that was worth spending that amount of time on. Because this film is a you know very uh, minimally sub two hour film. It's like an hour and fifty six minutes, and and I feel like and I I agree the film did not it, nearly need to be. Two hours long. It runs long it in that be, sense. It, it could be ninety minutes. Yeah, would have been fine. Yeah, and it needs it needed to be cut down quite a bit. Um, and the other thing that did irritate me a little bit too is just the Suicide Squad graffiti esqueness because the graffiti itself. I don't know if it, I've never read the graphic novel, so I I can't comment on that note. But for the film, the graffiti didn't really fit in with the actual plot line. I would have rather just had... It fits with the style, though. It fits with the style, but it doesn't fit with the plot. And I, I would have rather had just, like, regular... Title tunes. Yeah, regular like, regular cards. regular cards instead of the graffiti. Because it did feel like it was trying to be, like, too much of a pulpy, you know, stylistic film rather than just what it is. You know, go with the neon. Go on with it. Go with the neon stuff, for sure in the late 80s but you don't need the graffiti because i don't i don't know how much that actually fits so but anything else you want to add about atomic blonde before we close this episode out i think we i think we i think we uh exhausted it so what's next week on the agenda well, you said we're going back to horror we're going back to horror um i have not picked i have not picked a film out yet actually but um, I guess we covered like a '60s horror recently. We've covered even earlier horror recently with uh, House on Haunted Hill. Um, so maybe it's time to go '80s, '80s horror. I'm thinking I'm gonna pick something. That's not very common. So we'll see. I have I haven't picked it out yet, but I definitely will announce it before our next episode. So um, it'll be my pick. So we'll, can't wait. It'll be my pick. So maybe I'll even surprise you. You won't know until Tuesday night when we watch it, or well, Cannibal Wednesday, Wednesday night when we watch it. Cannibal Holocaust <laughs> is one of those films that 
I think everybody needs to see. I have never seen it, and I would, you know, I will one day see it. And I don't think we should do it just because no. everyone else has done it. I, I, it's one film that everybody needs to see one time. Do you, uh, is it a good film? Not really. Uh, is it, um, is it something that like people that regular horror fans will enjoy? Probably not. It's certainly, um, in, it, it was definitely a, um, inspiration for like found footage films. I, I would, I will, I will give it that. And it is, uh, definitely in the Mondo style of filmmaking. But I don't think that the atrocities that they committed on on film, like really killing monkeys and turtles and stuff like that, I don't think that really warrants actually supporting the film. Because <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a huge opponent of people actually, like, using animals within their films. Of, like, it's just unnecessary. I understand that it was a different time and people were like, well, I don't really know what to do, so just use a real rat. You know what I mean? But at the same time... I know that me filming, I wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't be able to put up with it. So it's kind of surprising to me, too, that the actors were just, like, okay with it. They were just like, oh, you're going to flamethrower that rat? Okay. So it's surprising. But I, I do think that everybody needs to see Cannibal Holocaust once. Will we cover it on the podcast? I don't know. I would say never. Just, just because, again. It's also I- not something that is really easily covered on a podcast. Like, there's not much... I wouldn't say there's well, no. much to talk about. No, I I think there is. I think again, like I said, it's just been done to death. Yeah. Everyone's anyone that does like a horror podcast has covered it. There's. It's kind of why I even when we were doing the George Romero, uh, memorial episode, I wanted to do something different than night because again, it's like. Even though yes, you know, we have our own take on it, but the, every, again, there's just been so much said it's on it. Yeah. You could. Maybe we'll do like uh, maybe we'll do like uh, Faces of Death or something. No, I got an '80s movie to do, but it's not in it's John Carpenter film, but it's not a uh, obscure. It's no, not it's, different. Well, it's obscure, but it's not a horror film. Oh, what, what it's a martial you, arts film. I know what you're talking about because we, you know, that's something we actually haven't even done yet. And this is a, yeah, this is a martial arts film. I don't know though. It's we've done too much action in the past few few weeks so we'll do a horror and then we'll then we'll talk about that after we'll, we'll do a couple of horror yeah yeah we'll get back because well, we roots. and if you don't know it's a big trouble in little china yeah and that's we have talked about that before because that's one of the carpenter films you have not seen yep it's a shame but we'll do we'll do horror for the next episode for sure so stick with us uh thanks for listening to blood and bike run podcast we hope you enjoyed it hope you uh uh have actually seen atomic blonde because otherwise we ruined it for you <laughs> uh let us know what you thought about atomic blonde you can find us on twitter at blood and black rum um you can find us on facebook www.facebook.com slash blood and black rum podcast we also have a group on there so join our group and this facilitates discussions uh we have a website blood and black rum podcast.wordpress.com uh, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and any other podcast app. You can also email us at bloodandblackrumpodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you think about the show, any other episode that you've listened to. Uh, give us recommendations for a new film, and we'll take all of those into consideration. And then finally, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash bloodandblackrumpodcast. Um, there you can donate to the show and you know give us any sort of monetary um 
donation that you so choose. And just remember that it is a monthly donation. So that's going to be coming out of your account monthly. So don't give anything that you can't afford to give. But we appreciate anything that you can send our way to help fund the podcast. Thank you for listening to Blood and Black Rum Podcast. And we'll see you next week for a horror film, one that we'll announce at a later date. Take care. See you later.